This week on Life and Faith. I don't, I don't think anyone can really get their head around it. These sort of things where you feel like in, a, in your scientific career that your work will build towards something that is, you know, you put hours in, you know, days and stuff in, all this hard work, and then feel as if like, maybe the greatest scientific achievement you had was just rocking up to a room and getting a needle stabbed in your arm. We have entered into an amusing ourselves to death moment in history. It doesn't make sense to me. If there is God, God's supposed to be free. I was 100% sure that I was sacrificing on the altar of truth my only chance for happiness in this world. Miracles don't necessarily change anybody's mind. It just gets their attention. And so I had to run with my child on my back, the Isa army coming behind us. I said, gee, Uncle George, this is luxurious for a communist. <laughs> Sonny said nothing's too good for the worker, nothing. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore, and I've been wanting to do this episode for ages. <laughs> uh, you were insistent on calling this, and fair enough, pandethics. Yeah, I genuinely came up with it myself. Um, mm. I did afterwards search on Twitter, and that confirms that I'm definitely not the first person to think of mushing the words pandemic and ethics together. Well, yeah, it is the first I've heard of it, if that's any that comfort. That is of great comfort, yes. And it works especially well, right, for 2020, because it really has been, among many other things, the year of the ethicist, maybe specifically the bioethicist. And there's lots of pointy questions in pandemic. Yeah, we figured we should talk about some of them. Yeah, so today we've got an Australian guy who offered himself up as a volunteer in the Oxford vaccine trial. And at the more philosophical end, someone whose job it is to think through the ethics of all of this. Natasha brings you these interviews. So my name's Dan Fleming, um, and I'm the head of ethics and formation at St Vincent's Health Australia. Dan's role is unique within the Australian context. St Vincent's is a Catholic organisation that's provided health and aged care in Australia for well over 150 years. And Dan helps them think through who they are and how they can act in line with that. That's been particularly important this year, as you can imagine. And yeah, it's like the dial has just been turned up. One of the things I've really observed is that every kind of stark decision we've encountered during the time of COVID is in fact something that's been there all along. It just hasn't been accentuated in the way that this point in time has accentuated things. One advantage of having a long history as an organisation is that your foundations for what you do run pretty deep. So it's 1838 and many of your listeners would know this geography really well because it's Sydney Harbour, New Year's Eve, 1838. Very different to a New Year's Eve um, that we'd have, obviously, in 2020, but 2019 and so on before. Um, and these five religious women, they were religious sisters of charity from Ireland, arrive on a boat. They've been on the boat for um, four months. I think they were the only women on the boat. Um, arrive into Sydney Harbour and are lowered down onto these waiting tenders uh, because there's no proper circular quay at that time, which take them to shore and they march off to Mass at St Mary's Cathedral. And the homilist at the time says something of them along the lines of, I am struck down in awe and ashamed at my own kind of lack of worthiness when I see these women who have come with the balm of consolation and charity to pour on the wounds of those who need healing. 
I'm paraphrasing there, but it was something along those lines. And no sooner had they finished that than they're off to the um, what was called the female factory in Parramatta, uh, where female prisoners were held to care for them. Um, and and that starts this long history of um, St Vincent's, which culminates in lots of different hospitals and and health and social services and aged care services up and down the east coast. It it has kind of chapters in the story like the HIV AIDS epidemic where we were one of the only hospitals to welcome people with that horrible disease uh, into our care, even at risk to the people who are on the front line. Um, and and the, the Spanish flu, obviously, as well. So in, in some sense, that history has given a great... Um, it's been a great point of departure for us. It's Our anchors are down deep. Yeah, because one of the things that, you know, as we've navigated the actual and the hypothetical um, kind of moral quandaries of COVID this year. Um, one of the things that, that's become apparent is that, you know, we don't always have the same basis for assessing these, like, dilemmas. Um, so can you kind of, before we dive into the actual dilemmas, um, sum up the sort of principles that you're working from as you approach these problems? Yeah, it's a, it's such an important question. And there's a sense in which our kind of business as usual in a relatively wealthy country like Australia can cover over lots of really fundamental differences in the way different communities and individuals see the world. Um, but but as you say, that there's a sense in which the anchors have become clear during this time. So for us, that, that foundational story captures a lot of those foundational commitments. Um, so uh, when you think of those five women who came out from Ireland, they did so out of a religious vocation and uh, they understood themselves as giving their life to God through the love and care of neighbour, through the provision of, of health care especially and support to those who are poor and vulnerable. Uh, and, and sitting underneath that um, is, is both a theological uh, sensibility which uh, suggests that the, the life that one is called into as a person of faith is both a life of serving God and serving one's neighbour but also uh, a particular focus in that context, which, which comes through in both the Jewish and the Christian traditions, of um, the neighbour to whom one is called first is the neighbour who's forgotten by everyone else. Um, and so we use various kinds of language to talk about this. So we, today we might talk about priority populations or poor and vulnerable groups and so on. Um, and, and different commentators use different language. So they might talk about the forgotten ones or those who live on the underside. Uh, and so our, our way of approaching things in the context of this theological framework is to see all people, number one, as having an equal dignity. Um, and, and this is a u unique feature of this framework is every person has the same value, ob objectively speaking. Um, every human person is enshrined in a, in a special dignity. Um, and that calls on us to think about, okay, well, in the context in which we find ourselves, whose dignity isn't being insured? Whose dignity is not being served by our current context? Uh, and just like the sisters who arrived in 1838 were first felt the call of conscience to the female prison in Parramatta, our service, if we're true to the vision and the mission of our founders, should be called first to those who are otherwise forgotten. And that sets the framework. Has there been a particular kind of issue, moral dilemma, kind of pointy end of COVID 
that for you this year has been the most kind of um, what's exercised you mentally, emotionally, um, what's been the most challenging to figure out the ethics of? Yeah, look, I think there is, and and I'd set it in a little context because one of the, the lures of ethics is sometimes to go right to the most complicated question. Um, and that's important because the most complicated question needs to be deal dealt with well. Uh, and, I, and, and that's the lure of our kind of popular culture too. We, we love to go to the extremes and, and think about the extremes. So, I mean, the classic conundrum of, of COVID and the most confronting one is the question of allocation of scarce medical resources. So, for example, um, and, and mercifully, we haven't seen this in Australia, even in Victoria or in this second wave, um, the, the context in which there's an excessive demand for, let's say, ICU beds uh, spurred on by the pandemic, which means that not everyone who arrives at a hospital and needs one is able to access one. Um, and so then the ethical question is, well, how do we decide who gets escalated to that care and who misses out? So that's, you know, the, the acute end of that is obviously very exercising. But a very wise friend and colleague of mine, David Carter, who works at the University of Technology, Sydney, made the observation early on, which has really stayed with me, that, that we mustn't separate out those moments from everything that leads up to them. And really this sits within a context of... Uh, an ethical framework called virtue ethics, which looks at our dispositions over time. So I'll just give an, an example. One of the things that happened really early on in COVID in our health service was that uh, a bunch of teams got together and our um, executive and board released a bunch of funding to enable them to do this, which was set up a dedicated pathway for those who are homeless. So again, um, the ethical framework calls us first to people who might be forgotten otherwise. And so in a remarkably short amount of time, they set up a dedicated service down in Victoria and Sydney was doing similar work in this space, uh, which would be um, a safe place for homeless folks to um, be cared for during COVID and if they became infected to um, be in isolation and so on and get the care they need. So there's... I mean, it's almost like writing a story. So there's writing the first paragraph. Here's the preparatory work to ensure that a group whose dignity is more at risk because of this pandemic is there's a pathway for them to be cared for well. But then we still have, that doesn't get us out of jail, does it? I mean, we still have to reckon with the question of, okay, what happens if we arrive at the situation in which there are um, more people needing a particular resource than we have that resource available. Uh, and, and that's the question that I think confronted most of us um, in the most salient way. Because as I say, we're just not used to the idea that we won't have what a person needs. One of the terms that's been tossed around a bit this year, the year that everyone became an armchair public health expert, is qualies or quality adjusted life years. Usually this is a concept medical professionals use to weigh how worthwhile a particular treatment might be for a patient. How many years of life is it likely to add? But also what's their quality of life likely to be? You know, chemotherapy is the classic example of this. Um, it's going to make the person sick. So quality goes down, but life years are extended. So it, it's become a popular method among some medical professionals and, community, and communities for thinking about the provision of, of certain treatments. Um, but it, it's hotly contested for a couple of reasons. Um, 
One is that uh, the, the, the good question of whether maximizing life years is um, the one goal that we should be seeking after in the context of medical treatment. I mean, obviously, it's a good goal, but is it the, the one goal we could be seeking after? And the second is, well, what assumptions about quality of life are built into this? But particularly controversial has this kind of metric been for people, for example, in the disability community uh, and people in the aged care community. Because lo and behold, those who are, um, if it's applied to a whole population, serves those in um, who are already relative, relatively well. And those who are um, maybe living with a disability or are elderly, it's harder to boost up their quality-adjusted life years, according to the metric. In a sense, it's a helpful thing for thinking about the effect that certain interventions will have. But what was really controversial some months ago here in Australia and still gets floated every now and then around the world is the idea that this metric should be used to value lives above others. In other words, let's apply this metric to effectively put a dollar value on the worthwhileness of um, this intervention against this one in terms of a whole population for COVID because that's going to give us you know, an answer for who we should prioritise and what risks we'd be willing to bear. But if we say that every person is of equal value and all of a sudden there's a metric coming in that says, no, no, let's think about how we value some lives over others and prioritise those who we value more, then we're in some controversial territory. And as I say, that thinking again of the story out of which we come, this causes an immediate reaction because who's going to be worse off in this framework? The very people we were set up to serve. Dan resists the kind of ethical thinking that boils everything down to you have to choose X or Y. He says there are lots of factors involved and lots of ways of approaching these moral choices. One of the things that kept coming up in, in the, the whole COVID-19 situation was analogies with the famous trolley problem. So the, the trolley is going down the track, it's going to hit five people. You have the choice of switching it and hitting just one. What, what are you going to do? Um, and I often use this problem in introduction to ethics things because it starts to get people's kind of ethics juices flowing and thinking about what, how will I respond and on what basis. In, invariably, someone always breaks the rules and comes up with a third option. So, And they'll say directly in class, even when I tell them you're not allowed to, they'll say, no, no, sorry, um, I, I've come up with a third way or a fourth way or a fifth way. And, and this is what this framework challenges us to do, uh, to think creatively and beyond the binaries that sometimes we first see. And it, it has been some of those creative things that have been absolutely beautiful in, in this time is, you know... Um, you derail the trolley. Derail the trolley, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, let's think of a third way because often, our, I mean, the, the famous binary during this time was is it saving the economy or saving lives? Um, I mean, what an absurd thing for such a complex problem to reduce it to two choices. Uh, and, and I actually think that that's... Often the case in these critical decisions, even in medicine, there are often other choices available. And when we begin with a framework that refuses to say, we're going to solve this by saying these people are worthy of treatment and these people aren't, or we're going to set this criteria because that'll solve our problems and kind of prevent us from having to think too much about it, 
then where it's uncomfortable space for sure and it might lead to lots of sleepless nights and tears and all sorts of things but that's what spurs on the creativity uh it's in the middle of the tragedy that we don't have a good option here that often these remarkable ways um of of finding a different pathway come to life and that that gives birth to moral imagination and so much of what I think we've admired as a community during this time have been these great moments of moral imagination where people have found new ways to do things. Uh, and that's extraordinary. That's what we, we can cultivate if we stay true to our principles um, rather than say, okay, it's too hard to apply them now. Let's go to a different framework. This is the Pandethics episode of Life and Faith, and we're thinking through some of the thorny questions that have been thrown up by coronavirus. Now, sometimes ethics can seem like an abstract thing, all what-ifs and technical philosophy terms, but it's been very clear this year that this stuff affects real-world decisions, real humans, life and death. We'll come back to Dan Fleming from St. Vincent's, but first, Natasha spoke with someone who had to think through one very specific ethical decision back at the start of the pandemic. Uh, my name is Edward O'Neill. I'm currently a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Oxford. Ed is from Sydney, but he and his wife and son are currently in a second lockdown in the UK. His day job is doing oncology research, cancer research. But back in April, he became a participant in the Oxford trial for a COVID vaccine. I wanted to know what it means to be part of this thing that we hear about pretty regularly in the news. Right now, not very much uh, personally. Um, so I don't get any inside information. I get most of my information just for the news sometimes. Like the, uh, the, the, really, the emails we get from the study is usually about six hours behind. <laughs> um, all the stuff you, you find out with the uh, news. Um, so usually AstraZeneca might release something before we find out about it in the study. Um, but in terms of my experience right now, I just have to write a, um, exposure survey to sort of have an idea of, you know, what likely risk I might be, you know, if there's people in my household changing, et cetera. Um, so it's very boring cause it's always the same each, each week. How did you get involved? So originally they were just trying to get, um, volunteers just through the uni I think just people who live locally because of the early days they wasn't sure if anyone could be moving or driving or anything like that or reliably um, so I guess they initially just sent an email out to staff so I found out through that and then I you know talked to my wife about it and so we thought about it and then we thought like it would be a good opportunity to to sign up Ed weighed the upsides and the potential downsides of volunteering. Positives included that it meant you could be tested for COVID, which wasn't widespread at the start. Also, the helping people thing. Knowing a bit about immunology, he wasn't too worried about the risks of the vaccine itself. But he didn't realise until the day of that he was one of only two people who'd be the first in the world to receive this jab. So there was a lot of media attention on the day. So how did that kind of moment feel when you're receiving that injection? You're like, we don't really know what this is or what it will do. It's not a usual medical experience we have. Well, I knew that the first 48 hours will probably be fine because the initial acute sort of response to a vaccine in that respect will probably be known um, based upon the previous medical trials. 
but I think that what only when I realized when I walked out afterwards, realizing that they actually had a, a an ambulance parked just around the corner, <laughs> and I didn't realize. Out of sight, not freak you <laughs> um, out. <laughs> you know, in the actual moment, I was um, trying to keep my heart rate down mostly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the fact that you will be your injection itself would be videotaped and then um, interviewed immediately afterwards. Um, you know, just like anyone doing public speaking, your heart rate goes up <laughs> and, and they had to keep that low. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to get the vaccine. So I was trying to really stay calm. The way it works is Ed and the other participant, one of them got the trial vaccine. The other got a meningococcal vaccine, a placebo that gives similar initial symptoms like a sore arm. So he still doesn't know which one he got. There's been some interesting moments since. The day after I uh, had the vaccine, um, there was the, I don't know if you remember the news reports of the um, fake news in that case, but um, fake news of how the other participant died. What? No. I did not see that. No, that one? Okay. Well, (laughs) that's because you're just listening to credible news sources. Um, (laughs) What, people were sending you this and being like, did you die? Uh, no, no one did. It was because um, it was they named the other person because you know both of our names are in the media. But she, you know, she obviously is not dead or anything. She's very much alive. Um, but it's just the kind of things that people just love stirring up and um, causing fuss and stuff and destabilizing the world. And I, I don't know why anyone would do these things. Um, then all these questions of like, why did they choose her and not me? And then, <laughs> there's no point going down there no point going down there but it must have been awfully stressful for her yeah so what you're doing is sort of you know without being too dramatic about it being a part of history like the whole world is kind of watching and sort of waiting on like really hoping that this all works um everyone's hurting and needing this does that feel like you know you're part of um, these kind of big world processes, does that feel strange to be at the centre of that? It it did feel very strange. I don't think I ever really got the... Gr- I, don't, I don't think anyone can really get their head around it. Um, these sort of things where you feel like in, a, in your scientific career that your work will build towards something that is, you know, you put hours in, you know, days and stuff in, all this hard work, and then feel as if, like, maybe the greatest scientific achievement you had was just rocking up to a room and getting a needle stabbed in your arm. I, I hope it would be more of that my other career, my other work would be more significant, but maybe that will be always a, a fun anecdote, I guess, in the future. <laughs> I think it was kind of a really surreal thing to have happen. Um, and it was, I did feel quite a, a, not really a burden, but an opportunity to demystify the whole vaccine process, particularly early days. Yes, I think you have to have a, just an element of faith, but I think it's a logical thing. You have to think about what is the trustworthy, who are the people involved developing it. I know that they did a lot of work involved to get at that stage. Um, and I know they're, they're still very non-sensational. They're, <laughs> the, uh, the, the head of the, um, the vaccine trial uh, for the Oxford is like, yes, it'll be great if our competitors succeed because we need more vaccines. <laughs> It's like a horse race, you know, which one wins? It doesn't matter. We all win. I was just happy to be involved, to be able to be just even a data point in a, in a study that, even if it wasn't successful, would help other studies to know which way to go. So I think 
we all were feeling really helpless. And I think it was kind of a, a very surreal feeling to be involved in just that little way. Are there ways that your faith, um, you know, as a Christian person has kind of factored into either your decision to participate in the trial or kind of how you've thought about that going on? Well, I definitely think it's a logical thing to think about who do you trust as faith is a trusting issue. It's not a blind thing. Um, and that by walking that, walking by faith, means that you have to think about where do I trust, put my faith and my trust in? And in that case, um, the vaccine might protect me. Um, but in terms of being as a Christian, I'd say that I'm already protected because of Jesus. You know, the ultimate disease, the ultimate death, I'm already protected against that. And they're sort of almost like a vaccine in that respect. It's still a very humbling experience to be involved, um, involved with the vaccine trial. Because it's you know responsibility that um, even if you did I you know was if I did get the vaccine um, it's still important to protect others with masks and things and I think um, it's important to be humble that I may not be protected against it and so I still want to love my neighbour and I was really racked with guilt particularly earlier on with. Um, uh, before the vaccine trial, especially just thinking that I might have the fact I might have the virus and not know, and I might give it to someone and then they might die, and that responsibility was really hard, um, because I really want to love the stranger, not just the the you know your family members and things, but also the stranger, not knowing who that might be. There's a lot of the the advertising, at least in the UK, is all about protecting your grandma and stuff. But I kept on thinking about like what about the others and stuff. So I think in terms of that's what I mean day to day, that's what I'm still doing in terms of living um, um, as a Christian in that respect. The day that I spoke to Ed was the same day Pfizer announced that the vaccine they'd been trialling, a different one to the AstraZeneca one Ed's part of, was proving 90% effective against COVID. Some good news. Questions around vaccination then are looking like the next ethical frontier in the pandemic. I asked Dan Fleming about this. So as we think about the possibility of vaccination against COVID um, in 2021, are there what what's particularly kind of keeping you up at night as an ethicist? Who gets a vaccine first and the rollout and that kind of um, who gets priority question again? Or is it issues with like vaccine hesitancy and whether we can or ought to make a vaccine compulsory? Oh, look, all of the, the above is of concern for me, but the deeper concern for me is actually probably the um, a, a false hope around a vaccine. Um, now, I, I, like you and, and many in the community, desperately hope that uh, this, this will happen and that it will be safe and effective and there are, there are some really promising signs uh, in, in some of the recent reports around this. But I do worry that uh, we're pitching too much on that possibility and not taking the time to wrestle with the possibility that uh, we might be stuck with this for some time and that calls on us to um, perhaps think of a different way of living. Uh, and, and I also worry in that context that um, the possible solution that's ahead is, is not, um, not forcing us into the position of learning the deep ethical lessons of this time 
about who we are, about some of the faults in our current system of doing things, about the way in which the, we go about our lives makes people acutely vulnerable in certain, certain contexts. And also some of the great goods that have come through this time, for example, even though we lament it not being able to travel so freely and so on, being locked into a context actually I think for many people has given them a real pre- appreciation of, of where they live and so on. So that's actually personally for me a deeper concern is that in the obsession to find a, a fix which allows us to go back to business as usual, we won't take the time to make the changes that I think many of us have seen and hoped for in this context. But the other thing I'd note in this context, and this is one of the enduring ethics lessons I think from this time, is just like the ventilator question, um, the vaccine question shows us that our resources are scarce. Um, and I mean, staying away from the medical context, remember everything that happened in March and April around toilet paper showed us this too. Uh, that if some people choose to consume um, an excessive amount of something or prioritize themselves for something which is scarce, others miss out. And that's true on a global scale. And if we come, if, if any of us suggests that we belong to a, an ethical tradition, whether secular or religious, that says that all people uh, have an equal dignity, we can't afford an approach like that in the distribution of a good thing like a vaccine. We have to think of those who are liable to miss out in our own backyard or elsewhere around the world who might need it more than we do in the first place. Uh, and think about, well, okay, how can we prioritise them? Um, in the Catholic tradition, this is called a preferential option for the poor, and it doesn't mean a kind of choice. It actually means that if we're true to who we are, we should be thinking first of those who are most vulnerable because of this disease and how we can solve the problem for them, the problem of infection, disease, mortality, and so on. Uh, and, and then after that point, start to consider the rest of the community. Because if we get that point right, then we'll get it right for everyone. But if we flip it around, we'll end up with, with a deeply problematic situation where you have some folks who are immune to this and able to wander around freely and others forgotten. One of many terms that have become familiar to us this year is essential services. In a different sense maybe to nurses and supermarket workers, it seems to me that bioethics has really turned out to be an essential service. I asked Dan why we need this kind of thinking. I think that... um it's a, it's a bit of like um, job self-support, isn't it? This, this, this kind <laughs> yeah. of Tell us why we need you. <laughs> but, but I think that firstly, uh, ethicists are important because like a nutritionist, they help us to think deeply about a certain aspect of our lives that's of fundamental importance. And um, sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that life is mostly ethically neutral unless we come across um, some catastrophe or other or some really difficult moral choice. But when we look more closely, and this I think is what COVID has done, we realise that our values uh, and, and our beliefs about the world and what's important and who's important are making themselves present all the time at an individual level in the way I respond to the people around me, at a community level in the way our community supports or undermines the dignity of those around. So just like a nutritionist would do for food, an ethicist should raise the consciousness of our communities and of individuals to think about that and to, to really ask the question of, um, of us, look, this is what you say you believe ethically speaking. 
are you being consistent with that? In the context of bioethics, which is ethics concerned with life, those that's really the, where the, the etymology comes from, um, we, we've seen that, that uh, so many of the decisions that have been made and imposed on us during this time have been decisions about life and the protection of life uh, and, and the methods used to protect life. And bioethics should help us to think about those questions again with the same kind of rigour. And, and it should challenge assumptions that sometimes exist in, in this space that economic metrics or, um, or kind of other ways of assessing value and making decisions are sufficient in and of themselves to guide our way through questions which actually have to do with life and flourishing. They're important. They're part of our community, absolutely. But they need to be supplanted with a broader vision of what it means to be human and a rigorous vision of human dignity. And that's where I think um, the specifically Christian contribution to bioethics remains significant. There are some remarkable theories out there, bioethical theories at the moment, that the, the most significant um, come out of the utilitarian framework, which, which has its great gifts in focusing on the good of the community as a whole, but it also has its great weaknesses. Uh, and often those weaknesses are felt most by the weak and the vulnerable. And going right back to Circular Key in 1838, if we look at a story like that and say, wow, those five women were really onto something and the worldview they possessed has something enduring and important to offer our community for those who believe the same things they did and for others as well, then we need to inhabit that worldview and think about what it would say for this point in time because it offers something that, that other perspectives might not and in so doing, I think it really improves what, what we would call the common good. This is Life and Faith. I'm Simon Smart and Natasha Moore has been speaking about ethics in the time of COVID with Dan Fleming and Ed O'Neill. A big thank you to both of them and, as always, our producer, Anthea Godsmark. If you can think of someone who'd enjoy this episode, do us a favour and tell them about it. Leaving a rating or review of Life and Faith would be great. Word of mouth is even better. Next week. You know, way back I made a commitment to her, you know, I chose her to love her and to care for her. And I made that commitment to do that. And um, I think we need to own our choices. And when someone has a, uh, a misfortune or a misfortunate event, we don't then turn our back on them and say, well, you know, this is too difficult for me. If you love somebody, you've got to appreciate what they're going through and, and know that they do require that, that support and that care.